Good. Well, good morning to you. It's great to be with you again. If I haven't met you before, my name is Matthew, and uh, I love coming and being with you. This is a cozy little space, isn't it? I, I find this time of year a sort of uh, a time of year when I like to be inside, out of the hot. Yes. It gets so hot. Every year I forget just how hot it gets in this part of the world. And I feel like I need salvation all over again. <laughs> Preferably involving water. In fact, this time last week I was returning from a week's vacation down on the Outer Banks. I love it down there. We've been going now for the last four years with a group of families. They have been going to this same part of the beach for 25 years, and there's sort of 20 or 30 of them. And when we first turned up in Washington, D.C., we were roped into this sort of community that do beach holidays together, which I love because previous beach holidays, small children, there's only one source of entertainment. And that's quite exhausting. Anyway, so we've been going down there for a few weeks, a few years rather. And um, this uh, time, we invited uh, another family to come with us, a Chinese family. The mother had been a visiting scholar for a year at uh, George Mason University. And uh, she had uh, come to faith at uh, Truro Church. She'd come first to do English language classes, and then she'd done sort of American culture classes, and that had led to Bible classes, and she had come to faith and been baptized. She had a little daughter, has a little daughter, and she'd longed to go down and have the experience of an American beach. She was about to go back to China. Her husband was coming to collect her, and we said, well, why don't you come and be with us? And I knew in the back of my mind that this would be for her a little sort of experience of Christian communities. I wanted it to be a good one. And we had a great week. We had a fantastic time. They really sort of uh, enjoyed their time with us. We got to talk, uh, talk a little bit, share stories. The husband is not a Christian, not a believer. And we got to pray with the family, laid hands on them, all sorts of good things. And I thought this could not have gone better until the very last night, I was kind of um, awoken from a semi-sombulent state, half asleep, and I heard this screaming I thought, oh no, what's happened? Something terrible has happened. Somebody's fallen or I don't know what's going on. And I went downstairs from where I was and it was my daughter, my little daughter. And she was absolutely distraught because she had found this beautiful little shell on the beach with a hole in it so she could put it on her finger like a ring. Except that the Chinese girl said she had found a little shell on the beach with a hole that she could put her finger through like a ring. And it had led to this furious argument. Now, I don't know if you know anything at all about Chinese culture, but being embarrassed does not go down well. And so suddenly, here was, right at the end of this, this experience of, you know, a, a, a time with a, a bunch of Christians, with a pastor, and she knew that I was a pastor, here was this moment where suddenly, perhaps, the one thing they would remember was being deeply embarrassed. What was I supposed to do? Was I supposed to march in and order this family to tell their little daughter that it was my daughter who'd found the shell on the beach and they should give it back? Or look into the eyes of my child who looked up at me and said, Daddy, she didn't use these words, but Daddy, I need you right now to take my side. I need you to be my defender with big elephant tears running down her face. 
Should I look into her eyes and say, no, darling, you just got to give it away? That wouldn't go down well. So suddenly I found myself in this terrible dilemma. And the dilemma got worse because at one point, and it doesn't matter which child did this, one of the children picked up the shell and hurled it at the floor and it smashed into pieces. <laughs> and immediately, and I don't know why, but something in me said, this is somehow important. I know it's only a little thing, but this kind of matters, not just to the two children, but to this family. And somehow, in that moment, when that shell was thrown down and smashed, immediately, that bit, do you remember Solomon? King Solomon. And King Solomon has brought this problem. Two women come to him and say, each say, this is my child. They're two harlots, actually, arguing over this baby. And King Solomon says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take the baby and I'll cut it in half, and then you can each have half. And of course, the true mother says, no, 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 no. Let, let her have the baby. The, the baby's life is the most important thing. And somehow that sprang into my mind. And I thought, Lord, at this point, I really need wisdom. I need to know what to do. And it's got me thinking about this thing of wisdom. And of course, the psalm that we read this morning is a psalm attributed to Solomon, who's known above all for what? Wisdom. As one who desired wisdom. As a culture, we have, I think it's fair to say, probably more knowledge, more power, more data, more algorithms to help us sort through that data than at any time in history. We are tremendously powerful. We've become rather binary in our thinking. We tend to think like our technology, as all cultures always have. Most of our technology really involves zeros and ones this or that, we've become a very binary culture. And yet this Psalm 127, which is attributed to Solomon, is evocative of a great and important strand of Scripture, which is wisdom and the wisdom writings. It is part of the Psalms, part of the liturgy of praise, of worship of a people, Israel, who loved wisdom and understood that wisdom was something that did not exclude knowledge, but was more than just knowledge. So I want to spend a few minutes with you this morning thinking about wisdom, thinking about this psalm written, we think, or is attributed to Solomon, who, when he was offered anything by God, it's a bit like if you read in Kings, when um, uh, Solomon, God comes to uh, Solomon in a dream, and he kind of says, a bit like a sort of genie coming out of a bottle, Solomon, you can have whatever you want. Whatever gift you want, you can have. And Solomon says, I'll have wisdom. And do you remember what God's response to that was? He was pleased. He was delighted that Solomon would seek and choose above anything else wisdom. And can we say that of ourselves? Can we say that as of ourselves as a culture, would we choose as our first gift, wisdom? Let's pray and then we'll have a little look at this psalm and see what it can teach us about wisdom. Father God, this morning we've come to worship you with our hearts, our minds, our souls, our bodies. As we spend a few minutes looking at your scriptures, thinking about your word, would you help re-inspire in us 
love for you. That we would not walk out without our sense of who you are, our worship of you being somehow rekindled. Holy Spirit, would you be the loudest voice? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been reading, uh, you've been reading through um, the Psalms of Ascent as a church, the Psalms of Ascent as this liturgy, this kind of mixtape of songs that Israel used to sing as they went up on the great pilgrimages to Jerusalem. That is a physically journey, uh, and physically it's up. You go up towards Jerusalem, but obviously there's a sense of moving up emotionally and spiritually as you, uh, you walk towards the great center of Israel's worship. And this psalm is an odd inclusion. As you read it, I wonder what you thought, if you thought anything at all. It's just an odd little psalm. Why is it in there amongst these great psalms of ascent, these great expre- uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, exclamations, is that the right word, of, of Israel's worship, this short, five verses long psalm that doesn't really seem to hang together very well. It sort of comes at you in two halves, and the two halves hardly seem to fit together at all. In fact, some commentators have said that perhaps it's just two bits of writings kind of jammed together and put into one song. It's a bit like some contemporary worship songs. It's just a few bits of lyrics shoved together. No, I'm not saying that. But the psalm is, as I said, ascribed to Solomon, Israel's gate wisdom figure. And he has a sort of, it may be a sort of concealed signature in the psalm. In verse 2, he grants sleep to those he loves. My teenage daughters would just love that phrase if they were here and not asleep somewhere. (laughs) That expression is his beloved. He grants sleep to his beloved the word is Jedediah. And of course, that was the personal name God gave to Solomon. So this is perhaps Solomon saying, this is me. Remember who this is, writing this. So the psalm is not unimportant because it, in evoking Solomon, and in evoking Solomon, he are invoking the entire, or not the entire, but a good part of the wisdom writings of Israel. And there are obvious echoes of the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the great sort of philosophical uh, you know, ramblings of uh, the, the, the scriptures. But actually, the psalm structure itself is not as random as you might think. And the first half is really about, ultimately, our fruitless efforts to achieve security. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand and watch in vain. In vain, you rise up early and stay up late toiling for food to eat. And probably most of us would remember that first phrase, unless the Lord builds the house. Do you remember that? Have you ever used that on somebody else? Be honest. You know, when something goes wrong, you know, it's one of those things we like to sort of trot out. Ah, well, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. So it's a very familiar piece of scripture. But in fact, that whole thing uh, is really sort of uh, built around this idea of vanity, vain. It's not exactly the same word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says Ecclesiastes. 
Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All our human efforts to build security, ultimately, what do they come to? You may build a great business, you may build a house, but ultimately your business might be inherited or taken over and somebody might make a complete waste of it. Your house may be burned down. What does it matter? All the things that we strive for most, in the end, doesn't it all come down to vanity? To make the end of your life, striving for these things can be a kind of enslavement. Not simply that our projects might fail, but ultimately, where does it all lead? And in terms of verse 1, this house and the city may survive, but were they worth building in the first place? So that's the first half of the psalm. And then you get this second half, which doesn't immediately seem to answer the first half at all. Children, the psalm goes on, are a heritage from the Lord. What's that got to do with it? Offspring, offspring, a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver, that's what carries that arrows, is full of them. They will not be put to shame where they contend with their opponents in the court. But in fact, I think this is a classic piece of wisdom. Because what this is doing is taking our preoccupations and then completely changing the perspective. It's taking the kinds of things that we worry about most, our priorities, and then actually putting over it God's priorities. So it is reframing the issues, and I think that is what wisdom does. Ultimately, this psalm seems to say to us, the house and the city that God is interested in is people. People, little people, children. And you have to hold in your mind that in the ancient world, children had very little status. They were very powerless. When Jesus says, let the little children come to me, when he talks about children, he's often evoking their powerlessness. And when he says, you need to be like a little child, he's telling you, you're also really quite powerless. So the psalm is taking our priorities and saying, look, there's a certain vanity, is there not, in all the things that we strive for to build our security. And then, like a sort of sudden shift, it gives a completely different set of priorities. And I think that is what wisdom does. Pope Francis was doing a um, series of talks on the works of the Holy Spirit, and uh, it starts uh, with uh, a talk on wisdom. And this is what Pope Francis says. This is wisdom. This. It is the grace of being able to see everything with the eyes of God. The grace of being able to see everything with the eyes of God. Seeing world situations, conjunctures. I'm not sure what a conjuncture is, actually. But anyway, that's what he said. World situations, conjunctures, problems, everything with God's eyes. This is wisdom. Often we see things as we want to see them according to our heart, with love, with hate, with envy. No, this is not God's eyes. Wisdom is what the Holy Spirit does within us so that we can see everything with God's eyes. This is the gift of wisdom. Einstein. Actually, rather a wise man, strange for a scientist. He was actually quite interested in philosophy. 
and religion. He said this, you can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking you use to create them. <laughs> it's quite wise, really, isn't it? Ultimately, from a biblical point of view, wisdom is not something that comes from within us. Yes, experience is a great thing. Knowledge is a wonderful thing. But wisdom is something that needs to ultimately come from outside the matrix. We're stuck in the matrix. We need something to come into the matrix from outside to give us a new perspective. There's a famous story, is there not, of Jesus' wisdom. Do you remember the story when a woman is brought to him who has been caught in adultery? And she's about to be stoned. The scribes and Pharisees bring this woman who had been caught in adultery, place her in uh, the midst of the disciples and say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. We're supposed to stone her to death by law. So what do you say, Jesus? And of course it's a trap because if he says, no, don't stone her, then he's breaking the law. But if he says, yes, by all means, go ahead, then he's behaving like a Pharisee, and bear in mind the people around whom he's hanging out who stand outside the law. So he stands to lose one crowd or the other. And then he, this is what he does, and it's a, a beautiful little detail. Jesus bends down and writes with his finger in the ground, like somebody on the beach, riding on the beach. And nobody knows what he wrote, what he was doing, but I kind of imagine he's doing something like this. I don't know whether this is right or not, but he's sort of drawing, whether in words, a spiral. And he's spiraling out from the problem to something wider and broader. He's moving the perspective to find a wise solution. So he bends down, he writes on the ground, and as they continue to ask him, so this obviously goes on for a bit, he stands up and says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone. You've come here with an issue about the law to trap me, actually. Let me make this and let me change the perspective and make it one of judgment. And then ask you the question, can you put yourself in the place of judge? What in you gives you the right to judge another person? It's a complete and sudden shift of perspective, and yet it is an extraordinary wisdom. And when they hear this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus, when you look and you look deeply at how Jesus lived, not just what he did. We're a very pragmatic culture. We like people who can achieve things. We like to achieve things. But when you see how Jesus dealt with people, there is extraordinary divine wisdom. I don't think we value wisdom in our age. I'm not sure we know what wisdom is. If you think about some of the favorite films that you have, where there's a hero who has an end, a goal, something that they want to achieve, at some point, often there is a wisdom figure that sort of comes alongside the hero. And you can sort of fill in the gaps with your own version of what that. But notice, it is never the hero themselves who are seeking wisdom. 
Wisdom is just there as a kind of help for the hero to get to what they really want. It's not wisdom itself that the hero is seeking. And it's interesting to me that wisdom figures in the films that we make and the stories we tell ourselves as culture are often minority figures. Isn't that interesting? Why? Why is the wisdom figure so often from an ethnic minority? What does it tell us about what we think wisdom is and the place and the value we give to wisdom? But God delights in those who seek wisdom. They are, if you will, his heroes. Solomon was his hero because he sought wisdom. So how can we get wisdom? How can we seek wisdom? Back to the story of the shell. So there I am, two screaming kids, a Chinese family who shut the door, kind of locked themselves in their room. They were so embarrassed. They didn't know what to do. And my daughter, you know, down the passageway, and I sat with her, and she was constantly looking down, looking at this door, this locked door, this closed door. Would the door open? Would this family come out and give her back her shell? It was the most extraordinary little thing, and I didn't know what to do. So eventually I thought, well, I don't know what to do, but let's go for a walk. Maybe as we walk, something will come to mind, and it was dark by now, it was night, so we went and got some flashlights and said, let's go for a walk on the beach. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can find another little shell with a hole in it so you can put it on your finger. How about that? And so we did. And off we went, me with my daughter, she with her daughter. A little bit of separation between the two of us because the two kids did not enjoy each other at that moment. And we went along with torches on the beach and little crabs scuttling around like this. And I was thinking, there's no chance, zero chance in the pitch dark that we will find a little shell with a hole in it that my daughter can put on her finger like a ring. But lo and behold, we did. We did. Maybe there are thousands of shells on the beach like that. I don't know. But we found one. I was, that was so excited. She was so excited. And she got it and she put it on her ring and she was happy. Problem solved, right? No, because it had become about something much bigger than that. There was a relational rupture that needed to be restored. And wisdom said, that's what really matters. And I knew that finding a shell was not the end of the, end of the story. It's a little thing. It's not a big thing, but it's a little thing that mattered. And so we thought as we walked, my daughter and I, and then I can't remember whether it was me or her. She said, what about if we find a shell and give it as a gift? To the other little girl. I thought, yes, that's wisdom. So we looked and we found a shell and we went to give it as a gift. And the little Chinese girl said, no, she didn't want it. So we went back and we were walking and we thought, no, let's try again. So we found another shell, a bigger one with lovely stripes on it. And we took it and this time the gift was accepted. And the relationship was repaired. It is a small thing. It was a small thing. I don't think it was profound wisdom, but what it was was shifting the perspective to the thing that really matters. Just like the psalm, so the psalm we read, shifts the perspective from our vain preoccupations with the things that we like to build in order to feel secure and says, no, in the end, your security and God's priority is a people-oriented thing. This is about people. The church is about people. I know that's an obvious thing to say, but it's easy to forget. That the thing that God desires is a lot of children, lots and lots of them. 
as many children as possible. That is what God, in His wisdom, is seeking. Do we really want wisdom? Do we really want it? How do we get it? Two thoughts to end with. Look at Jesus. And I say, of course, we look at Jesus, we're a church. But look at Jesus not simply for what he has achieved for us and what he has done, as important as that is on the cross, the atonement. That is extremely, obviously, right at the heart of the Jesus story. But look also at how Jesus did things. If you really study the way, not just the how, but the way Jesus treated people, it's an example, a personification, if you will, of wisdom on earth. And there is actually a great tradition in the Christian tradition of understanding Jesus as the personification of wisdom. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, to those who are called, that's us, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So don't just think of Jesus as somebody who has achieved something for you, a functional hero. We've got a world full of functional heroes. We love functional heroes. That's great. But look at Jesus also as one who showed us a way to be in the world, who revealed wisdom to us. And then secondly, as Pope Francis said, wisdom is something that the Spirit does within us. It is a gift from above. And we, what is it about gifts? You have to ask for them, don't you? In, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul lists the gifts of the Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, Paul says, but the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, different kinds of working. But in all of them and everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one of them, uh, one of us, The manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That's what it's doing. And then he starts to list the gifts of the Spirit. And what is the first gift he lists? It's not difficult. Wisdom. Perhaps it's not right to put too much importance in order in lists, but I don't think it's completely insignificant that the very first gift that Paul lists is the gift of wisdom. James the Apostle said this, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of us this morning are finding ourselves in a situation where we simply don't know what to do, we don't know what to do. We've exhausted all the possibilities. We feel confused. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God delights in us. I can say that with authority because that's what the Scriptures say. He delights when we come to Him to seek wisdom, to seek His perspective, His way of seeing things, His way of reframing the problem. And surely, I don't need to say, state the obvious, it feels to me, does it not, to you, that we lack wisdom in our culture. We don't have many wisdom figures we look to. We need wisdom. The church needs wisdom. Deep, a profound wisdom in order to navigate problems like sorting out two squabbling children and a shell. And there's something about a shell in the way it's formed, isn't it? A shell is formed over time around a living organism. Last time I checked, you were all alive. 
You are a living organism. Wisdom is something that is formed around you over time as a work of the Holy Spirit. Let's ask for wisdom. Amen? Let me pray. Has the band come up? Father God, thank you that in you all the resources we need are present. And that you have not left us as orphans lacking the resources we need. And Jesus, thank you that you demonstrated and brought into our lives wisdom from above. Thank you, Lord, that we can look to you as an example, but thank you, Lord, that also you have given us your Spirit, Holy Spirit, to speak to us in our confusion, to speak to us when we don't know what to do, and to show us what it is to look at anything through God's eyes, to see the world as you see it, to see your priorities, your ends, your purposes, so that we can participate. Help us to love wisdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.